Well, at this time, we always now begin to understand what it is that the Lord has to tell us in His Word. If you'll turn with me to the book of First Peter, we'll be in chapter 2. We have been uh, teaching through and preaching through uh, this first book of Peter uh, for a couple of months now. And it is so relevant to our church in this present age in that we as Christians, as God's people, as His church, even in this Christianized nation, we are more and more so finding ourselves as aliens in this world. Even in this country of ours that was founded on Christian principles, we who are Christians and and we strive to be faithful to the Word, we find ourselves being more and more outcasts. And I think the words of Peter are always relevant, but I think more so for us even now. And so if you can, let's turn to chapter 2 of 1 Peter beginning in verse 11. If you'll stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, uh, we will read verses 11 through 14. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let's pray. Father God, your word reminds us of our our duty as your people. That no matter where we are, wherever you have placed us to live, to work, to be a family, to be a church, wherever it is, Lord, that you have called us, we are to live as your people. Even if that means that those around us do not agree, those around us do not worship the way we do, those who around us who may even come and attack us, They attack your word and not us personally. And so, God, I thank you for the words of your servant Peter that you've given us as encouragement, but as a reminder of exactly our place in this world as your people, as your church. It's difficult, God. It's difficult to stand up to those who oppose us because they oppose you. This is where we depend on you, Father. We depend on your mercy. We depend on your strength. We depend on you, God, to encourage us and to actually pour into us that ability to even live Christ-like lives. Teach us, God, through your word, we pray. Forgive us where we fail you. But, Lord, we so depend on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Anybody here ever felt like a righteous indignation has risen up in you to fight back? No matter what the situation is, you you feel uh, threatened, you feel attacked, you feel disrespected, and what is our first reaction? Every one of us, we want to stand up for our rights and how dare you talk to me that way or treat me that way. I have my freedoms, blah, 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 blah. Don't you know I'm a Christian? 
Anybody been there? Anybody been guilty? Yeah, amen. I think what Peter is writing uh, here to the churches, uh, it kind of helps us understand the proper place here of this. Remember, uh, let's remember the context here of which Peter is writing. He is writing these epistles, these letters, First and Second Peter, to the church as a whole, that church which has been spread throughout the Roman Empire to the outer reaches of the empire, the places where nobody wants to go. The, pl- the way I like to try to describe this to people is if you're a Star Wars fan, and you look at the planet of Tatooine and all these outer realm citizens, or these cities and these hole-in-the-wall places out in the galaxy where all of the worst of the worst end up at. This is where the Christians have landed in the Roman Empire. They are on the outer reaches of the Roman Empire where no one wants to go. Matter of fact, if you're a Roman citizen or in the Roman military and you are stationed in one of these outposts, that's a punishment for you. This is where the Christians ended up because of the persecution that had come at this point in history by the Roman Emperor Nero. He had begun to really condemn and begun to murder and martyr the Christians. And when that is happening, you're fleeing for your life. And so Peter is writing to the churches who have been scattered throughout the world at this time unknown what their life was going to be, whether they were going to live through the week, whether they were going to live to the end of the day. They have left their homes. They have left their their comforts. They're now in a new place. They're they're establishing new new careers, new ways of working, new ways of living. And they're surrounded by people who are not Christian. So Peter's writing words of encouragement here. By the time we get to chapter 2, he is encouraging the churches. Well, first of all, chapter 1 is, remember, is that summary of a reminder of the cause of your salvation. Remember, it is that God who bought you through the blood of Jesus Christ, He's the one who redeemed you. He's the one who changed you and made you new in Christ. This is why you're so different. This is why you are seen as an outsider where you are. Now in chapter 2, He's actually putting all of this into application, practical application here of Christianity. By the time we get to verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, reminding them of who they are. They are exiles in the world, and they're traveling through, trying to find their place. And as Christians, let's just be real real here. As Christians, we will never, never be solely satisfied and content in this world. It's not going to happen. We are going to, we're going to feel like sojourners and, and wanderers in this fallen world, aren't we? It's whenever the Christian begins to feel comfortable in the world that that's a, that's a sign, according to Peter, that we have then become, that we've now embraced the world and merged it with our Christianity and that by doing that we've actually weakened the faith and actually created a faith that's not of Christ. He's reminding, this is where you are. I urge you as sojourners and exiles in verse 11 to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Right? As a Christian, do you not feel that tension within us? Right? I want to lash out. I want to do what's fun. I want to go follow the crowd, but I know there's something in me that is holding me back, and there's this tension between what Christ has made in us and what the world expects us. But also, 
within us, are we not redeemed from a fallen, sinful world? Are we, do we have a fallen, sinful nature? We, part of the, 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 the salvation process is, is that God through the Holy Spirit has woken up within us this reality, this real, the realization that we are sinners. And that sinful nature that we are born with is at constant war with this new creation that Christ has instilled in us. They're constantly battling. <laughs> If you've got that wage of war within your spirit, I say, according to what Peter is writing here in chapter 2, verse 11, these words encourage us. If that's what you feel like, guess what? Welcome to the Christian club. I think that's an evidence that we are Christians, that God has worked a new work in us and is continuing to do so because this tension between the soul and between the flesh is going to constantly be at tension. It's there. Why is this important? This, this concept here of the flesh and the spirit constantly at war is a constant theme throughout Scripture. Constant theme. We see it everywhere. We see it in Proverbs. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 15. Flip over to the book of Proverbs. Has anybody here ever read the book of Proverbs? Uh, as, I, as our children were growing up, uh, whenever we could get everyone at the table, which we tried to do as often as we could, tried to be consistent with that. But homeschool parents, let me, let me just give you reality. You can make that a schedule every single day. Parents, who even if you don't homeschool, you can make that a schedule every single day. But life happens. Uh, children oversleep. Uh, can we say parents oversleep? <clears throat> and we don't make it to the breakfast table on time. And so there's no condemnation there. But we would sometimes read the Proverbs together and try to discuss them. But Proverbs uh, chapter 15, verse 33. Here's what the wisdom of Solomon reminds us. He says here, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs uh, chapter 11, verse 2. We're not going to read all of them, but just a, just a few points here. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. What we've got going on here is that Peter's reminding the church this tension between pride and humility. This tension between we want things our way and I'm going to satisfy my own desires versus what God has placed. There's this tension here between pride and humility going on. St. Augustine, the early church father, who is actually seen as second to Paul as the smartest Christian ever to write and to serve the church. Paul is considered number one. We have much of the New Testament from him. St. Augustine comes second in the way Christian thought works. St. Augustine had his magnum opus work called The City of God addresses this issue of Christians living in a world and this tension between pride and humility, between the city of men and pride and the city of God filled with humility. Augustine writes this work, the city of God, at the very end of the existence of the Roman Empire. By the end of the 4th century, by the dawn of the 5th century, the Roman Empire had collapsed. Peter here, in the 1st century of the church, has experienced the, the prosecution of the Roman Empire against the Christians. By the 4th century, by the end of the 4th century, Christianity had dominated at this point. And then at some point, all of the paganism of the Roman Empire imploded upon itself 
by the end of the 4th century and the Christians were blamed. Did you all know that? By the end of the 4th century, the, Christ, uh, the Roman Empire had been overrun by the barbarians and the pagans and the Gentiles of around, around the world and they had collapsed and Rome had burned and the Roman Empire ceased to exist by the end of the 4th century. And everyone blamed the Christians. Those Christians came into our empire. The Christians overtook our empire. Uh, Constantine took over the Roman Empire and he changed the Roman Empire into a Christian nation. And look what it did to us. And Augustine wrote this wonderful work called The City of God as a response to that. It's a great summer read. It's about a thousand pages or so. I challenge you all, if, uh, if you're into these kind of things, uh, have your children read it over a summer. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. But in that work, the city of God, the, the, the focus of Augustine here, it follows the same biblical principle here. That there are two worlds, two cities, if you will, at war with one another. You have the city of men versus the city of God. Christians are part of the city of God because that is the reality that God has established through His Son, Jesus Christ, versus the city of men full of pride and arrogance, constantly at war with one another. Pride versus humility. Anybody here a prideful person? Anybody here prideful enough to admit it? Or humble enough? That's the point. If you're, pri- if you're proud, you won't admit that you're proud. But if you're humble, you know, maybe I am proud. There's this tension going on here between the two. And so Peter here is reminding the church here in chapter 2, verse 11. As a theme that is even in the Proverbs and all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, there is this tension going on between you as exiles and Christians. The reason you're exiles and you feel this way is because you're at war with the world. Or actually, you more accurately, the world is at war with you. Verse 12 of chapter 2 Peter continues here as he encourages them to abstain from the passions of the flesh because in this new life of Christ, the passions of the flesh are going to constantly be tormenting you. By verse 12, he says, Now keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. They are living amongst those who are not Christians. The church is now spread and scattered and they are living in as aliens amongst Gentiles, those who are not Christians. I brought this point out last week. This terminology of Gentiles is very important. Of course, this, this term is borrowed from the age of, uh, of the Jewish tradition. You have the Jewish nation and you have the Gentiles. But now as the Christianity comes on the scene... Uh, God has now spread the gospel even to the Gentiles. But this concept of the Gentiles is still important. Our brothers and sisters in India, as I shared last week, our brothers and sisters in India and the churches, they make it very clear a distinction between those who are in the church and those who are not. If you are in the church, you are a brother or sister in Christ. You're part of the family. If you are not part of the church, they call you a Gentile. And they don't, they have no apology for it. We are going to go and preach to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are their neighbors because they're not in the faith. So Peter here in verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The idea here of conduct here really implies behavior. Keep your behavior among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your way of life among the Gentiles honorable. Do we have a way of life? Do we have a lifestyle? Is there certain ways that we do things? Right? Do we all? Every family has a unique way of doing things, right? 
That really does not become a reality until somebody gets married and the two, one of the tensions in a new married couple's life is wait a minute, mama does it this way, but no, no, wait a minute, my daddy does it this way. And these two individuals are trying to merge into one new family and you've got two traditions of families trying to clash here. That's part of living as a new married life, isn't it? Trying to harmonize. Wait a minute. That's the way your parents did it. No, this is the way my parents did it. Wait a minute. You're creating a new family here. Let's figure out how we do it. This is what Peter is bringing out here. It's just part of living, right? Part of the con- part of the conflict that we have with one another is the fact that everyone has a different way of doing things. Right? And Peter is, is applying this in, in reality. Keep your way of life, Christians, among the Gentiles honorable. Now, the King James Version here says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. I mean, it clearly implies here that as Christians, we are going to be different. We're going to be aliens surrounded by pagans and surrounded by Gentiles. But clearly here, we're going to have conversation with them. We're going to have interaction with them. We can't avoid the world. We are here. You see that? But as you do so, Peter is reminding us, keep your way of life honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of solicitation. Notice here that language here in verse 12. It's not that maybe they might speak against you or if they speak against you. It's a guarantee. So that when they speak against you, They have nothing to charge you with. Now, the responsibility here from Peter is not on the Gentile pagans. The responsibility that Peter's talking about here is to the Christians. That's an important point. How many of us as Christians want to put the blame on those who come against us? It's their fault. They don't understand me. I have, I mean, they're going to attack me and it's their problem. No, according to Peter, he says this is our responsibility to conduct our lives in ways and to conduct our ways of life in a way that is honorable to Christ and totally different from the world. Because it's inevitable we are going to be attacked. People are going to speak against us. And when that happens, wait a minute, did nobody tell you that when you came to Christ and were baptized? Right? Did nobody tell you that people were going to come against you and attack you? Or did they tell you everything was going to be beautiful and wonderful and just give your heart to Jesus and all that, right? Peter is reminding you, you are Christians. When they speak against you, when the evil people speak against you, make sure they have no grounds for their attack. Now, how many of us have failed in that, really? Here's the the thing. Conduct that is honorable actually calls those who are not godly to a beautiful thing. That's a responsibility of the church. We are in Christ. We reflect the image of God through Christ. We reflect, we are Christ-like. What was it that drew you to the gospel to begin with? Was it something that was offensive and ugly and, and Repulsive, or was it something that was beautiful and alluring and attractive? If we are called to this beauty of Christ anyway, the same thing is expected of the Gentiles or those who are against Christ. They are going, they should see in us the same beauty that we saw in Christ that drew us to Him anyway. 
And Peter is reminding the church, this is your responsibility when you are in exile here. Live honorably so that when the ungodly people want to speak evil against you, the only thing they can say is something that is beautiful. As a church, I hope that we continue to grow in that. Let's just admit it. There's many people who refuse to end up in churches today because there is no beauty there. There is only worldliness. Many of our churches, would you agree, are more worldly than they are godly. But at the same time, we don't want to be so judgmental and so holier than now that we repulse people that way too. We as Christians are called by Peter here to live a life, to conduct ourselves in a way, to behave in such a way that is attractive to the world, yet at the same time separate from the world. We don't want to, we don't want to be worldly in our beauty as Christians. We want to be godly in our beauty to those who do not know Christ. They're going to see it as something foreign. They're going to see it as something as strange. But if truth be told, they can't say anything evil against it either. You see the harmony there? That's a a balancing act, isn't it? (laughs) That's impossible to complete. Would you all agree? Wait a minute, Pastor. You're, You're calling out us out to a very difficult challenge. Yeah, because Peter here is. That's why we depend on Christ. This is why God's sovereignty is important because only God Himself can cause us to be saved. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3? It is God Himself who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ. We could not save ourselves. It is impossible to earn our salvation. It is impossible for us to be saved by our own will. It is God Himself who causes that to begin with. It's going to be God Himself through His Spirit and through the Spirit of Christ in us, that new nature that we are. That is the only way that we can conduct ourselves in a beautiful, honorable, Christ-like manner. And so when people see us, do they see Christ? Or do they just see more hypocritical worldliness? That's what Peter's reminding us of here. Now, at the end of verse 12, he says that as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And even those who are evildoers will glorify God on the day of salvation. What does that imply? That means the end times, the day of judgment. That's judgment day. When all will be revealed, Luke chapter 19, Jesus speaks about this when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and He speaks about Judgment Day as that time of God's visitation upon Israel. That's the day of visitation here. There's this concept of the telos. It's a Greek word that means the end means or the end purpose by which we do things. Think about it. How many of us have a goal that we always want, that we have to reach for. Do y'all have a goal that's out there ahead of you that you're striving toward? Hopefully we do. Something that gets you out of bed in the morning that you're aiming for. That's what the telos is. That's that end purpose. Peter's saying here in verse 12 that end, that end day, that day of salvation, that day of judgment, that's what we're striving for that then affects how we behave now. On Judgment Day, God will determine who were with Him and who were not. And even those who are against God, even on Judgment Day, will have nothing else to say but, okay, God, you were right. 
These Christians were honorable. These Christians were faithful. These Christians were beautiful. Now, verses 13 and 14. Peter continues here with his imperatives, right? The imperative being commands and expectations. He's now encouraging the church and commanding the church. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, when you look at verse 11 and 12, contrasted with verse 13 and 14, you might say, wait a minute, now Peter's changing his mind here. Initially, he wants us to live honorably amongst the Gentiles, but now he wants us to be subject to them. Hmm. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Wait a minute. God, are we supposed to be separate from the world? Then why do we have to be subordinate to it? We're supposed to be separate from the authorities of the world. We're supposed to be separate from the Gentiles and live honorably as Christians. But now you want us to be subject to them? You see that in verse 13? That could be a very confusing point. So let's understand what Peter's saying here, verse 13. He's saying be subject or be subordinate to Every human institution, but why? Be subject to every human institution for what purpose? For the Lord's sake. Don't be subject to every human institution simply to be subject to them. But you must be subject to every human institution because God has called you to be so. Now, this sounds like a contrast because in Acts chapter 5, what is it when Peter is standing before a judgment? He says, we must obey God rather than men in Acts chapter 5. Peter himself has said this. He actually argued, we must obey God rather than men. Whenever Peter and many of the apostles were condemned and brought before trial before the Sanhedrin or any Roman authorities, they were saying, your authority is no good because my authority is to God. Now in verse 13, Peter says, be subject to every human institution. Is he contradicting himself here? I don't think so, because being subject to human, every human institution means that we obey the authorities that God have established for us, even if those authorities are not in the city of God. They are more the city of men. We still live there as Christians. We must still be subject to them as God calls us to be. Turn with me to Romans 13. I think Peter, I mean, actually Paul helps us understand this, this paradox a little bit easier. Romans 13. Are y'all sensing the tension here between what he's talking about? On one hand, we're supposed to be separate from the world, but then on the other hand, we're supposed to submit to it. That's very can be very confusing. The Apostle Paul in verse thir- or chapter 13 of Romans, beginning in verse 1. Paul saying this to the church in Rome. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We are called as Christians to submit to the authorities of that are around us. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Why is this? It's because any authority, any civil authority that conducts government practices to keep us safe, to keep us content, to provide what we need for a healthy living, Those that authority has been established by God. 
and Christians are to submit to the authorities, not that the authorities are better than God, but that we are to submit to the authorities because God himself has established that authority. If we resist the authorities that God has appointed, then we will face judgment. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Right? The only people who are afraid of government and afraid of authority are those who are terror, terrorists, criminals, those who want to fight against common rule. They're the only people who have who should fear the rulers. Verse 4, For he is God's servant for your good, talking about the authority. The authority the, uh, who is in charge is God's servant. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Can God use a pagan, a non-Christian, a Gentile, who does not love God, to carry out God's plan? Absolutely. Old Testament is full of it. And when the children of Israel were cast into exile in Babylon, what's God tell them through the prophet Jeremiah? You're going to be gone for a while. Build houses. Marry your children off. Create businesses. Live honorably, even in exile, because you're not coming home. God even called his na- the nation of Israel his chosen people when he actually condemned them to exile and he allowed pagan nations to drive them off into captivity. He said, okay, Israel, you still have an expectation to live like my people even in exile. Now, not, how many of y'all would want to do that? Now, wait a minute. I'm going to start a revolution. I'm going to start a guerrilla fighting group and we're going to rescue all of our people and we're going to re- gain our freedom again. Hallelujah. Bless God. And God said, no. You're going to be in exile for a while. How many of us are willing to do that? Now, I will argue that there are times righteously, as much trouble as it can be, it would be a righteous, godly thing to rebel and create a revolution. But that's not every single time. Here's some examples. The one thing that we need to look at here is that when God has placed someone in authority, when God has established a civil government, he has done so for them to be his arm, his mouthpiece. But what if that authority resists God to the point that that person, it's absolutely clear that that they are dishonoring God. We can look back in our history of Adolf Hitler in the 20th century, World War II. There were Christians who actually took up arms against the the Nazis and the German Gestapo. Were they righteous in that? We have the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mean, he's now become a very uh, prolific. I mean, a lot of evangelicals are reading his works now. He was a martyr in World War II. Why was he executed by the Nazis? It's because Dietrich Bonhoeffer took part in and planned an execution attempt on Hitler. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually writes about this. He struggled with this whole decision as a Christian. How can I be a Christian while still desiring and planning the death of a leader? There's a tension there. It's not an easy decision. 
There may be times we're called as Christians to fight evil. But at the same time, we're also called to live amongst evil and shine that light of Christ. We may not be the ones that God says, go be the revolutionaries. God may just say, like Peter says, and what Paul says in Romans, live amongst the pagans. Live under authority because that authority, even though it may not be a Christian authority, is that authority that God has placed over you. That's hard to harmonize. That's hard to reconcile in the, in the mind, isn't it? What does this ultimately lead to, though? It ultimately leads to our submission to God. Even though we may be in submission to an authority we do not respect, we may be in submission to a civil government that we do not like, we are still in subordinate to nature to them because we are subordinate to God as Christians. We submit our lives to Christ. Amen? That's difficult, but it's expected. Because if we submit ourselves to the governors in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, if we submit ourselves to the governors, if we submit ourselves to the supreme, uh, supreme emperor, if we submit ourselves to those who are over us, those who God has established, then we actually give God honor in that process. And in verse 15, we'll actually look at verse 15 through 17 more next week. But what does this lead to? <laughs> This is God's will. And if we do good, we give Him glory. So here's the thing. If, if, if evil people that we live around, those who are not Christians, who do not agree with us, don't even understand us, if they bring evil accusation against us, do they have grounds for that? If they do not, we have nothing to fear. We just stand our ground and say, look at our conduct. Honestly evaluate me. Honestly evaluate my conduct. Have I been that evil to you? And if anyone is honest, if they see goodness in you, then, they'll, then their accusation has no merit. But if their accusation against the Christian has merit, that we have conducted evil thoughts and evil behaviors against our neighbors, what do we do as Christians? The Christian will... Acknowledge their sin and ask for forgiveness from their neighbor. You're correct. I am wrong. Now, how many people do that anymore? Just by acknowledging our error, just by acknowledging the fact that I have offended you, my neighbor, just because I have acknowledged that, you know what, you're correct. I was wrong. Please forgive me. That right there shows goodness and the blood of Christ. Doesn't Christ Wash over our sins because we acknowledge that we're wrong? And have we not been bought by His blood? We're going to continue to express that throughout the rest of our lives in some fashion. Salvation doesn't mean that we're perfect. Salvation means we're forgiven and we acknowledge our errors every time that we do sin. But also salvation will lead to fewer and fewer errors. <laughs> fewer and fewer acts of evil. Fewer and fewer thoughts of evil as God continues to work this salvation in us throughout our lives, we will become more and more Christ-like as time goes on if we are submitted to the authority of Christ and if we're submitted to that authority Christ has placed over us. Amen? This is the word of Peter to us. He says, live an honorable faith. 
you ever pondered that? What is that? Is your faith honorable? Or is your faith contentious? Is it contentious with your neighbors, contentious with your community, contentious with your family, or is your faith honorable and meek and upstanding in goodness? It's a good thing to ponder, isn't it? If our faith is not honorable, then I would challenge us, that is a red flag for us by God to return to our origins as Christians and repent and submit Again and again, not not be saved again and again, but it's just another continuing process of sanctification in us. It's evidence that we have been changed. We are called by God to be his witnesses in a fallen world. And the fallen world is going to come against us. They're going to it's an evil place. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. <laughs> That's the one thing I want all, all of us Christians to be, and I have to be reminded of that. Whenever I get all upset about the way the world works, why am I all upset? Guess what? That's the way the world works. It's not a surprise, but then we act surprised. Come on now. We were once like that. Remember, Peter talks about that too. At one time, you were like the pagans. You, at one time, you were like the fallen. At one time, you were the world. Now you're not. Remember that in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2? It's another reminder that we are set apart to be different. That's what it means to be God's elect, to be God's chosen. We are set apart by God to be different in a fallen world. Just like he called the nation of Israel and set them apart as his chosen elect people, you will be the light in the world that I want people to see. Wow. That humbles me. That expectation of God upon my life, doesn't that just humble you for a minute? Or does that scare you to death? <laughs> As we close out here, I want to close this in a prayer. But One thing that we can always be challenged by in God's Word is that God is always teaching us something when we come to His Word. Is there something in your heart, in your mindset, in your life that you say, Pastor... <laughs> This, this, these words from Peter are speaking directly to me. Man, I have failed. I have acted more like the world than I have acted like Christ. And God expects better. If that's the case, I want to encourage you to spend some time with the Lord right now. Do some business with Him. That's the way we say it. Do some business with God. Forgive me, God, for embarrassing Your name. Forgive me for not behaving the way that You've made me to be. And I want to also ask, secondly, that we begin to, honestly, as a church, right? Let's begin to earnestly pray, Dear God, give us opportunities to be Your people amongst the Gentiles. I'm going to start calling... All good Tennessee, the land of the Gentiles. Okay? I won't start using that language. I think we can. Would you all agree that there's a bunch of pagan Gentiles running around? Do we work with some? Do we know some? Do we judge them and condemn them? Or do we love them and seek their salvation in Christ? We're here for a reason. God's placed us here. Let's ask God to show us what that is. Let's pray. Father God, you, you always have so much to teach us in your word. 
And every single time, God, we are humbled by it. I pray, God, that these words that you've resonated in our hearts this morning, I pray, God, that they would take root, that they would begin to grow as you would have us to be your light in this community, as you would have us to be this light amongst our family and our co-workers. God, I pray. I pray, God, that you would forgive us where we have had the wrong attitude toward things. Where we've had the wrong attitude even toward our unsaved neighbors, our unsaved family. And we've acted more like a pagan and an evildoer than a Christian. Teach us, God, to live and behave amongst the Gentiles the way that we should be shining the light of Christ as your servant Peter reminds us. This is why we must depend on you. This is where our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ really hits reality. There's no way, Father, that we can be that light apart from your mercy and grace and your provision, your actual working in us. We can't do this apart from you. And so, God, I pray that you would forgive us, but teach us and walk with us as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All hearts clear? Amen. Well, God bless you guys.